For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So I want to start today by talking about non-duality. So just to talk about non-duality, first I want to speak say what duality is. Uh, duality is very much built into our world and consciousness. Of course, we know about the all the dichotomies in our society and the distinctions and um, and some who are trying to uh, increase that uh, or uphold that. Uh, so uh, white, black men, women, Chicago, California, uh, right, left, anyway, it's, um, it's very much part of our world. And It's also built into our language and how we think, and it goes very deep. So our language is subject, verb, object. So we are all subjects, verbing objects as we, as we, our language leads us to think that the world is out there and we can manipulate it, or we might be, feel like we're objects being verbed by subjects, at any rate, there's this uh, polarity, this distinction, this duality that's very much built into our culture and more fundamentally into our human language and worldview. So part of, a big part of our practice is seeing through that duality seeing that actually we are all deeply connected and enmeshed and together. We are all impacted by everybody we, knew, we know and everything we see. And as we practice more, we uh, may understand that the so-called world out there is not a bunch of dead objects. Everything is alive. Of course, all beings, whether they, whether, you know, whatever polarity we might think of them as, but also the human beings, but also other beings, and also 
everything, the land itself, mountains, waters, um, all impacts us. So this duality we can see is uh, an illusion, a delusion. We live by it, but how do we get beyond duality? So we might think that we should embrace non-duality as opposed to duality. To see connection, non-separation, oneness. However, oneness is not the goal of our practice. There are spiritual traditions that uh, try to uh, achieve or realize oneness, but actually in Zen and in Buddhism and in Bodhisattva practice, non-duality is the non-duality of duality and non-duality. That actually our, our sense of duality of subject-object and of non-duality of connectedness, connectedness that can become another duality. And both are important. So we will be chanting later the harmony of sameness and difference, which is uh, a, tr a traditional Zen uh, expression of this ultimate non-duality. How do we harmonize our sense of difference, but also our sense of oneness and togetherness? So, um, duality is not it's not like the enemy it's just part of our reality as is non-duality and how do we see them together this is basic Mahayana Bodhisattva teaching that Nirvana freedom liberation is not separate from samsara the world of uh, differences the world of even uh, marginalizing and oppressing people or forests or mountains. So how do we see and practice this deeper non-duality? So uh, we recently changed our Bodhisattva vows translation from the second one beings are uh, delusions are numberless, I vow to end them. We can say, we're now saying delusions are boundless, we vow to cut through them. The point, the point isn't to crush all delusion. I think this is a common misconception that people have when they come to practice. Oh, if I just get rid of all my delusions, then I'll be awake. Yay. Just got to crush all those delusions and trample them and get rid of all of our hang-ups and all of our, all the ways we're, we're caught. That's not our practice. That's not the tradition of our uh, branch of Buddhism. We practice steadiness and awareness, right in the middle of delusion. You know, some of our personal delusions we can get rid of, or they drop away, or they ease up, or whatever. But some are deeply embedded in the structure of our lives and our culture. Uh, 
the point isn't to just get to get rid of all delusions. That's not really possible. Some of them, well, maybe in maybe for some people, sometimes for a while you could get rid of you could let go of all delusions. But it's not about attacking delusions. We live in the middle of delusion and awakening, and both are part of our practice, of our reality, of how we live in the world. And so how do we do How do we live in the world in this non-duality of duality and non-duality? So uh, just a, a quote from early, very early 20th century Japanese Soto master who was very influential in the modern Soto school, named Oka Soto, Commenting on Dogen's writings, Goju Kaiman on the on the precepts says, abandoning error and and ceasing to do evil is not our school, not our school's point of view. We recognize there is harm and harming in the world. We recognize there is confusion. We recognize delusions in our society, but also in ourselves. So how do we practice with that and with awakening and with seeing through? So this has big implications for uh, our Bodhisattva precepts. And I'm just going to touch on this today. I'll speak more about it in the next month or two. But conventionally, the 10 grave precepts seem like ethical guidelines or rules of conduct. A disciple of Buddha does not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given or does not steal, does not uh, uh, misuse sexuality, does not lie, does not encourage addiction, and so forth. Uh, I think in the West we have taught those as ethical guidelines. And yes, I think they're valuable as ethical guidelines. But the point isn't that uh, in, in, this, in the centers and tradition and in Bodhisattva Buddhism, the point isn't that uh, we take these on as uh, thou shalt not, like in the Ten Commandments. It's hard not to hear them that way for us in our dualistic Western world. These are not uh, so much commandments or guidelines we can using this guideline, but basically they're descriptions of reality, of Buddha nature, of how Buddha is. Buddha is not killing. Buddha is not taking what is not given. Buddha is not misusing sexuality. This is what awakening is. So, uh, All of creation itself describes and explains these precepts. The precepts actually, you know, from a philosophical perspective in our tradition, the precepts come before Buddha. It's not that the Buddha teaches these precepts. The precepts are first and they give rise to Buddha in all senses of Buddhaness. So the precepts, we could say, even create Buddha. 
not vice versa. These are the nature of reality. And of course, we, we can think that, oh, we're killing something or we're taking something that's not given and so forth. But actually, in awakening, these are just descriptions of reality. This deeper reality that we connect with this non-duality of duality and non-duality, this harmonizing of difference and sameness, that we come to um, express and realize as we are involved in sustaining practice. This is true not only in space, in terms of our interaction with others and with the rest of our world, but in time also. Time is also non-dual in this way. And this has major impacts for our understanding of karma, of cause and effect. Conventionally, we think that something happens and that causes other things as effects, but actually cause and effect are one. So one, one statement from our tradition, you should know that causation is the one true mark of things as they are. Cause is not before effect and vice versa. So in our ultimate, the ultimate reality of the simultaneity of all things, as well as the interconnectedness of all beings. It's all right here, right now. Teachings by, from Buddha, teachings from Dogen, teachings from Suzuki Roshi are all right here. How do we Realize this, express this, express this in our everyday life. So, uh, again, there are all kinds of separations. There, are, one separation is that we imagine is that there is this one separate practice, you know, in residential monastic communities up on mountaintops. Sahara or mountains or Beiheiji uh, in Japan or whatever. Um, this Sangha intentionally is in Chicago. Of course, it's in other places too. Let's see, um, Mark is in New Mexico and Ron is in New York and Nathan's in Michigan. Yeah, there's, there are, we are all here together in space, but also we're all here together in time. This is not how we usually think. So I understand this, what I'm saying may, be, <laughs> may seem strange or whatever, 
But this is the ultimate teaching of our school. The precepts, are, again, are not ethical guidelines. Uh, and and uh, Jukai are receiving, accepting and receiving the precepts, which if several of you have done here, uh, is not about learning ethical guidelines, although that may be included. It's about realizing and expressing <coughs> and, and being confirmed in connection to Buddha, connection to, well, a particular lineage of teaching, which is not separate from other lineages of teaching in the Bodhisattva way. So, uh, how do we see this deeper non-duality of our everyday life and of uh, something deeper that goes beyond? And so, this Sangha in Chicago is in the middle of a big city. All of you have, uh, you know, lives in the city, families or important jobs or all jobs are important. All your work life, your family life, your, your neighbors, all of that is part of this greater non-duality. We express it there. It's not that uh, being in the Zendo is better than saying hello to your next door neighbor. So uh, I came to Chicago intentionally to create a Sangha of non-duality right in the middle of the city. And that's happening, that's what we're doing. We may not recognize it sometimes. Sometimes we might wish we could just go off and spend days and days just doing zazen. And that is wonderful, you know, and sometimes there are times and places to do that. So, um, non-duality of duality and non-duality. One way that's, that's expressed traditionally in sangha and particularly in our lineage is through grandmother mind, grandmotherly mind. So I'm going to talk about that also, and then we'll have time for discussion. But there's a story about Dogen who founded our uh, tradition in the 1200s in Japan. In halfway through his teaching career, he suddenly abruptly left Kyoto, where he had a temple, the big uh, cultural capital of Japan and moved his whole Asanga out of the city up to the mountains of Eiji, the far north, very remote. And we don't exactly know uh, how and why he did that. Um, he didn't talk about it. It just just happened. Um, so I'm not saying that, that practicing in the city is better than practicing up in the mountains. They're non-dual. One is not better than the other. But Dogen, uh, for various reasons, uh, there was uh, there was tension and strife in the capital where he, Kyoto, where he was practicing. And uh, there was a competing Zen, big Zendo. It was uh, sponsored by 
that's where powerful people that was being built right near where his temple was in Kyoto. But also he had he had students who uh, were uh, monks who, who were studying with him who were from that area in the north of Japan. And it was then called Echizen. And uh, they provided him with the possibility of a large temple there, Eheji, which is still there. It's still beautiful. One of the two headquarters temples of Sifto Zen. Amongst those monks was uh, one named Tetsu Gikai, who's in our lineage, two generations after Dogen. Tetsu Gikai uh, was the Tenzo at Eheji. He was uh, a very dedicated monk. Uh, uh, later on, he became the abbot of Eheji. But Dogen said to him, I, I'm not gonna, I can't give you transmission because you do not yet have grandmother remarked. So later, uh, Dogen's direct successor, Koan Ejo, gave, did give transmission to Tetsubikai, and he became the abbot of Eheji. But this grandmotherly motherly mind is, I think, very important for us in the Sangha. It has to do with radical welcoming and inclusion of everyone and kindness. Sometimes grandmothers can be strict, but there's also this caring for everyone. So we have, uh, I can see it here, and I can see it on the wall, people joining us from uh, distant places, and they are every much, every much as part, a part of our Sangha as the people here practicing in this room. Everyone's included. And this grandmotherly mind is to, to make people feel welcome. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes we may say, we might say something and convey some brusqueness or abruptness or, you know, something that feel, doesn't feel welcoming. But our effort, our Impulse should be this radical welcoming, radical inclusiveness, radical kindness. Everyone is here equally. We do have various temple positions and so forth, but the point is each of us is here, in body and heart. The people I can see online and the people in this room, wonderful people, together. How do we support and encourage and and uh, make an effort to radical welcoming and inclusion. Everyone is welcome. So, you know, that's a little difficult sometimes because we do have these um, ritual forms. So in the Zendo, we come in and bow to our seat, we turn clockwise and bow to the room and to everyone, and then we sit down. Um, and online, our practice, uh, and it's not always clear to everyone, but we, the uh, guideline is to, when you f first appear on the Zoom screen, bow to the screen and be seated. So, um, and, and it's difficult to include all of these forms on Zoom. So that's something we might try and work on. 
But what's important to, to say is that we learn and care for these ritual forms as a way of harmonizing sameness and difference, as a way of working together. But we hold them lightly. It's not like these rituals are like the point of our practice. <laughs> so uh, sometimes people can get very attached to the rituals. And it's not that you have to do it right, and especially for new people. And people are welcome to join us here or online, um, everyone. But um, to express this welcomeness, welcoming, it's not about doing the forms correctly. It's good to know the forms, you know. Uh, and the more we do that, then the space and our bodies are harmonized together. So this is part of the harmony of difference and sameness. But it's not about doing it correctly. It's not about getting it right. And, you know, if you don't know the forms, don't worry about doing them perfectly. That's not the point. Just follow what other people are doing when you come into this endo. Watch other people and follow along. So the point is, how do we harmonize Sangha together? How do we be kind and let go of our tendencies to judge, you know, who's doing it better, who's a better Zen student, blah, blah. That's not the point. This grandmotherly mind is for everyone. So one example of a new form that we've just, they were just instituting started, starting last Monday, uh, when we're finished with service, which we'll do, we'll be chanting the part of the difference of saying this after this talk and after discussion. Um, don't rush out the door. <laughs> we haven't established that form before, but it's sort of been chaotic. People just kind of flowing out as, you know, in the knowing. Uh, but we all bow out together. And then let's leave the way we do kingdom. So uh, starting here, we flow out and everybody come around. Uh, the greeter did, and they have to leave early. That's fine. But uh, so the the uh, techno person today, David Ray, would be the last to leave as we flow out. So again, that, don't worry about getting that right. The point is, how do we move together and see our practice together? So this grandmotherly mind is subtle. It's not, you know, it's not obvious how we do this sometimes, and. Any one of us might, you know, kind of get caught up in judgments or whatever and uh, not be as welcoming as we would hope. But anyway, so uh, this, this ultimate non-duality is subtle. How are we so deeply connected that beyond our differences and beyond our sameness, we work together, we practice together, we care for each other with grandmother and mother. So there, there is difference, you know. I can identify different people <laughs> on Zoom and in the room. Some of you have been here much longer. 
um, know all, all this and are familiar with all this stuff. Some of you are newer. It doesn't matter. How do we all work together? And let go of our judgments about, about differences. So, um, that was actually a lot, and non-duality, duality and non-duality is kind of subtle, but I'm going to stop now and uh, welcome comments, questions, responses, and please bring your questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Any question you have is, belongs here. <coughs> So, David, would you help me and help call on people on Zoom, but also anybody in the room? Please, you can just raise your hand. I think I can see you all. So, comments, questions, reflections. Brian. Yes. Um Years ago, when I was immersed in the Christian contemplative tradition, I came across um, Matthew Fox, who wrote a book that became very popular called Original Blessing. And I went to a talk that he gave um, where he was talking about that book. And, you know, in the back of the book, he's got this list, a dual list. On one side is the the dualistic uh, people and uh, things in the Christian tradition, and on the other side of the page were the non-dualistic um, uh, versions, or you know, in contrast. And I, when he was talking, I found myself getting more and more uncomfortable, and and I realized that there was a certain kind of violence about it that uh, wanted to, as you said, destroy the the dualistic. And I always wondered what you know what we do with that uh, dualism and non-dualism together, and. Um, one of the things that you say from time to time that I find very helpful, and I wonder if you could tell us where it comes from and unpack it a little bit if you can for a minute, is that um, you can be deluded about enlightenment and you can be enlightened about delusion. Um, something like that. Can you say something about that, where, where it comes from and unpack it a bit? Yes. That's in Dogen's uh, essay, Kenja Koan, maybe his best known essay. Um, he says a lot about that. He says to be in delusion throughout delusion, to be in awakening throughout awakening. So the point isn't to get rid of delusion. So the quote that I uh, paraphrase sometimes is that deluded people are deluded about enlightenment. Enlightened people are enlightened about their delusions. So it's not about one or the other. Uh, Matthew Fox is uh, an impressive person I taught at his University of Creation Spirituality in Oakland for a little while. Um, but yeah, I think, and maybe in the, in the way that you saw that, that chart, that's an example of pe- people, um, someone championing non-delusion at the expense of delusion. But actually, the reality of our lives is that we got both, you know. And so how do we uh, awaken to our delusions? And that doesn't necessarily mean crushing them or getting rid of them, or, you know. It's seeing them deeply. But what's difficult about Zen practice is not, you know, getting your legs into some funny position or whatever or sitting still or 
But um, that we do, as we practice and as we sustain our practice, we do um, see our own personal hang-ups or delusions. And, and maybe also the delusions of the world. We see those more and more intimately. So that's about awakening to our delusions. And when you, when you are intimate with your own ways of judgment or whatever, you don't, you, you don't need to uh, react based on that as much. You can uh, hold it lightly, as I said, and um, not be caught by them. So, so we cut through delusions. We don't get rid of them. We, get, we don't be caught by them. But that takes a lot of work. That's, that's a lifetime of practice. Because these, some of these... Um, Delusive, we could say technically delusive habits, very deep, you know, deep in our genetic karma, deep in our cultural karma, deep in our bodies. So to, to sit upright and face the world walls, to face ourselves, and to really see this stuff. So thank you for that question, Brian. Does that, does that help? follow up? Way, Please. Um, related to what you're saying, I, it's been helpful for me to. Uh, see that delusions can be placed in in context, uh, or, or they can be they're not they're not absolute. They're um, they they come from certain circumstances and conditions, and they change and they, you know um, come and go. And and that means that uh, cutting through them sometimes seems to be uh, seeing what they are and what they aren't. And, and not taking them so seriously. It's sort of like an annoying old friend that is not going to go away, but you, you kind of know who they are and what they're about. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Um, well, that takes some time. Sometimes we just, you know, feel overwhelmed by some destructive habit or whatever. Uh, and, you know, that's the hardest part of exhausting. But we can soften up and, you know, harmonize the difference of sameness. It is not getting, holding on so, so tightly. It's allowing the dance of non-duality and the non-duality of duality and non-duality to appear in the context of a particular situation in the world or in ourselves. And uh, this practice of sitting, just sitting quietly and upright in the middle of that is wonderful. We don't have to be thrown around by delusions. We live in the middle of delusions and awakening. Thank you, Brian. Other comments, questions, responses, reflections? And I, and I would add that, you know, uh, we've been talking some about the value of Western psychology as this tradition and practice comes into our cultural milieu. And so that we can use those, um, those insights from Western psychology as part of this.
Yes, David Ray. Thank you, Tegan. Um, thinking about cause and effect and the way that you described them as um, maybe bidirectional or not, not, not set up in, in, a, in a rigid pattern, it, it's easier to see that in, or to think about that in nature. So say that spring brings the flowers and the flowers bring the spring. It's harder to see it in, in, in the human ethical realm where it seems that, you know, cutting sharp distinctions is sometimes just the thing to do. Like when, like when Dogen withheld um, Dharma transmission and someone makes a decision to do a difficult thing to uh, a difficult thing out of kindness. Um, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm feeling that I'm feeling a kind of tension of that. Good. Yes, it's it, it is a tension in our usual conventional way of thinking. Absolutely. Um, so we have to honor our conventional, our social conventions, our human conventions. We don't you know, ignore them. But yeah, um, to say you know I, I just. I just touched on that really briefly. That's a huge, that's several Dharma talks, you know. How is it? What's the relationship between cause and effect? And and um, you know, there's the famous Fox koan about teachers saying that they were not, and all teachers saying that greatly cultivated people are not subject to cause and effect. Well, of course we are. And he's freed from his fox body by hearing that. We don't ignore cause and effect, but causes become effects, and effects become causes. And it's uh, this has to do with you know, the deeper nature of time that Dogen also wrote about a lot. That uh, things move around in very different contexts. There's a question uh, that Jan has posted. And it says, uh, can Tigan discuss the new or not new life way called non-binary regarding which gender a person chooses? Now, gender is such a complicated thing. Uh, you know, we um, was growing up this male and female and the icon of masculinity was John Wayne, and the icon of femininity was Marilyn Monroe. Anyway, that dates me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, how uh, this sense of gender fluidity has to do with uh, you know the dynamics of. It says sameness and difference. So this is another harmony, harmonizing of uh, in, in Chinese thought, yin and yang, uh, receptive and active. So um, masculine doesn't mean just active. It also can be receptive and sensitive. Feminine doesn't mean just passive and receptive. It also includes active and dynamic. So uh, uh, I think it's good that uh, our society now is exploring all of this, and you know, it, it's all a question. It's not. It's uh, not said. I don't know if you have any comment, David, for or uh, Jen. Let's see what hands comes up. 
or anyone. Comments on this or anything else? Yes, uh, Isha. I wonder if um, how this question might relate to the phenomena of the, um, you know, absolute and the phenomenal world. That that in the phenomenal world we have, you know, three or four dimensions, and we feel the need to categorize things. But in the absolute or universal sense, um, experience is, you know, infinite, and it doesn't neatly translate into categories. And so um, perhaps when people are sitting with themselves, they, um, we, we can all get in touch with aspects of ourselves that don't fit neatly into categories. Right. And, and so maybe I, I wonder how much bearing that has on this, but, but I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's also different for each person. So it's, it's a very personal perception decision. How, how one wants to identify oneself. Sure. And identity is a fluid thing. That's the cause and effect part. It's not one thing. And yet um, we have this tendency, <coughs> excuse me, maybe in our culture, but maybe just as, as, uh, as human beings with subject, taught to be, to think in terms of subject and object, we think in categories. And then we want to hold categories, but categories are fluid too. Uh, we think of them as, a, as ultimate, but in, in reality, in change, things change. So how do we uh, recognize that aspect of reality? Yeah, so thank you. It's, yes, it's true that everything is fluid. That's part of the harmony. harmony the harmony of difference in saying this is not Something that you got that you got said, and there it is. It's an it's an active dynamic. In all nouns are actually verbs from the point of view of Zen. And Japanese is as uh, lovely in terms of this because you can make any noun into a verb by just adding suru. So harmonic suru. So to harmonize, harmonizing is not something that you do once and then you then you've got it. It's this it's this dynamic activity of our whole lives. I'm not quite sure how to express this, um, but for school, I'm studying um, the theology of suffering um, from a Christian perspective. Um, and what is it to be suffering? And, and that so often people in suffering are looking for a, a point to relieve their suffering. They're trying to overcome that. Or can you can you speak about, about that in regards to what you're saying in regards yes. to suffering? Yeah. So suffering is um, well, suffering is a lot of things. That that word includes a lot, but uh, the suffering you're talking about is trying to hold on to one perspective, mm. one way of seeing, one way of identifying. One way of um, fossilizing 
self or others as objects when we objectify, we're also objectifying ourselves. So reality, from a Buddhist point of view, is intersubjective. We're all subjects verbing everything, and everything is verbing everything else. So so we cause suffering when we try and hold on to some definition or some category or some perspective with exclusion of everything else. Of course, there's also the suffering of persecution and suffering of war and the suffering of the Ukrainian people and the suffering of, you know, people trapped in situations where they are uh, not able to provide livelihood for themselves. So that, there's, that is also suffering. Ron, did I see you have a question? No, okay. So we have time for sure. Uh, maybe you can turn the clock so I. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we have time for more discussion. So, uh, any other questions, reflections, perspectives? Kathy, hi. I when you were talking about honoring our delusions, I was thinking. Now, that means taking some action or deciding how to think about, how to orient around that. And I um, can think about this in an individual way, but um, when it comes to a sangha, I think, you know, like, what if we all do that a different way? Then how do we coalesce? Yeah, sangha practice is not about establishing some some particular standard on our own that is the rule. Like every, like life itself, sangha practice is fluid and, and moving. And uh, and how do we respect the differences and the different views and the different perspectives of others? And how and how do we do that? Sangha is that we come together to practice awakening which means also practicing awakening to our delusions, to be respectful. So that's a word that I should throw in here. I said, I talked about kindness, but it also means respect, respecting everybody else in their way of practice and trying to harmonize that. So uh, that's a difficult process, but that's the process of um, supporting awakening in our world in a particular sangha, but also in the sangha of all the beings we interact with. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging. And, it, and it, it's not, it's a, it's a shifting situation. So we have to respect and be kind to all the shiftings and to all the other perspectives and beings and so it's, it's very challenging practice, but it's how we most deeply awaken and support awakening in the world. So it, it, this non-duality of duality and non-duality, 
it might feel um, difficult or challenging or upsetting even for some people to think, oh, I have to in include dualities, <laughs> include, uh, you know, all the dichotomies and I have to respect all of that and, you know, we may not want to. <laughs> How do we um, realize and appreciate that reality, which is the reality in which we are awake. So, uh, are there any other comments, reflections, questions? This is this may be a very challenging way of seeing things. So. Uh, I think it is very challenging because I think most people are trying to find stability in life. Yeah. They have things, you know, set and fixed and safe in that sense, feel safe. Yeah. And what you're saying is that there is no stability to, to the way that those people perceive it, that it's always fluid. It's always fluid, but also there's a steadiness within that. So thank you for that question. Yes, um, how do we find our seat is one way we talk about Zen practice and Zazen. How do we find our seat, which is uh, in some sense comfortable, but without being attached to comfort in our comfort zone. Um, but the problem is grasping. The problem is trying to control things so we can set it up and then uh, everything is done. Okay, uh, it's okay. It's possible to be um, to find a way of being upright and steady and enjoying our inhale and exhale right in the middle of all the changes. And sometimes there's more changes than others. So um, yeah, the most the most dangerous attachment, according to Nabarjana and all the teachers about non-attachment, the most dangerous attachment is the attachment to non-attachment. That's kind of what I'm talking about today. Trying to sit, attaching to, to non-duality and trying to avoid dualities, trying to avoid... Uh, you know, the facts that we do have attachments... We do want to be safe. How do we recognize that, accept that, not, you know, how do we also, um, part of that attachment and that grasping is wanting to control things. And so uh, the ultimate, um, non-duality, duality, non-duality is to letting go of our impulse to control. Of course, there's lots of things that we can sort of control, but that's not an absolute issue. I, I along this line, I like to remember the line from the song of the grass hut, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely, that we whatever it is that we have that we think we have right now is temporary, and it is duality. It's it's not right to try to get rid of duality, but um, but how do we relax with that and and accept that this is this is what we have to work with right now, and it is deeply subject to change. 
Amen. And, you know, most people don't think that the purpose of Zen practice is to relax completely. <laughs> if you walk into a room where people are sitting all day, you can see bodies that are, you know, tight or, you know, it's, uh, we all have tensions in our emotions, in our, in our bodies, in our karmic awareness. So to relax completely, to just let go of all our striving to control things, all our striving to be right and correct. How do we ex forgive ourselves for being human? How do we forgive others for being human? It's really hard. There are things in my life that I regret. Relationships, things I did in relationships that I regret. How can I forgive myself? Except that I did something that may have caused harm or did cause harm. We all can, we all have that have that situation in each in our own particular way. Right. Yeah, I still thinking about this relationship of um, non-duality and duality. And, and David, your question of suffering brought this to mind that maybe uh, when we look at something like uh, suffering, whether it's personal or corporate or uh, social, we employ what we might call duality to, to fix something. I mean, if somebody's diagnosed with terrible cancer, you don't sit around and say, oh, it's all one, and right. I'm just going to accept whatever. Or, or if there's a situation of injustice, you don't just, oh, well, it's all one. Yeah. You, you, you say, this is bad, <laughs> and I want it to be different. I mean, and, and I'm I making. Wouldn't, I wouldn't make it in terms of good and bad. Well, it's destructive. Harm, it's harmful. Yeah, it's harmful. And, and, and helpful. And, and we need to do something about this. And, and uh, right. you employ dualism, in a sense, by making distinctions and decisions and uh, trying to make something stop and something else happen instead. And, but you also know that maybe the, the non dual part of that is that you know you're going to die eventually anyway. And you know that. I am? Yeah, <laughs> but in the end, the world is you know screwed up, and and you're not going to fix it all. Well, and so you, it's in context. It's a judgment that it's screwed up. Well, the world is the world. The world is what it is. It's going, it to, it's going to always be harmful. There is harm. Yes, there is harm. There's active harm. We we can see it very easily all around in our world. So how do we? So that's the question. How do we act? So that's the question of skillful means, which is a whole other talk. But how do we study? I don't mean intellectually, although it can include that, but how do we, you know, in our body part awareness, see that kind of harm and the causes of it? And then how do we respond in a way that is helpful? And each of us might have our own way of doing that. And none of us can can you know, fix uh, injustice and racism and, and wars, you know, in the next 40 minutes or whatever. But how do we work towards decreasing harm? Yeah, that's our active practice. And it, sometimes 
you may not be, you may not see something positive, constructive, helpful to do. It's possible that we don't know what to do. But if we sit and pay attention and look at the world, we might each find something that we can do that is helpful. Uh, I see Jan Budart is online on our Zoom, and she has talked about how she has a passion about trying to, t- to respond to the dangers of nuclear waste. It's one example of some great harm. There's so many examples like that, but she's dedica- dedicated to that. And I think that that's, that's a valuable uh, example. We each can take one thing and work at it. And some of us might take a few things and work at them, but ha- we we don't we don't know what to do to fix these things. So it's not like we can just say, "Okay, I'm going to do this and that'll fix it." It's a this is sustained practice. This is like zazen. This is you know how to um, make the world more helpful rather than more harmful. So yeah, thank you, Brian. That's that's the challenge of our practice in our world at this time which includes the dualities and the distinctions and the, and the harmfulness and, and the suffering. We're not separate from that. We don't, we, non-duality is not somewhere we escape to, to be free from that. Not spiritual bypass. This is our long-term work. So, uh, we have time if there's another, any more questions or comments or responses. I really appreciate everybody's sharing these perspectives. So this this uh, non-duality of duality and non-duality, and more this non-duality of cause and effect, are not how we're used to thinking about things. So um, please sit with these questions. So thank you all very much. Uh, we will uh, do the Bodhisattva vows and then uh, have announcements, and then there'll be a service and the chanting the harmony difference in sound. David Ray, would you read us in the quarter of the Kings are numberless. We vow to them. to them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. We vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. We vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to cut through them. 
Unsurpassable, we vow to realize. 